We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask you to just bless this time as we look at your word and help us to see what you would want us to see from this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel 32, we're continuing our uh, messages against e Egypt. Verse 1, And it came to pass in the twelfth year of the twelfth month, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him, you are like a young lion of the nations, and you are as a whale in the seas. You came forth from your rivers and troubled the water with your feet and foulest their rivers. Thus saith the Lord God, I will therefore spread out my net over you with a company of many people, and they shall bring you up in my net. Then I will leave you upon the land and will cast you forth upon the open field and will cause all the fowls of the heaven to remain upon you. And I will fill the beast of the whole earth with you and I will lay your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your height. I will also water the, your blood, will, will also water with your blood the land wherein you swim, even to the mountains and the rivers shall be full of you. And when I shall put you out, I will cover the heaven and make stars thereof dark, and I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the light, bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and set darkness upon your land, saith the Lord God. I will vex the hearts of many people when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries which you have not known. Yea, I will make many people amazed at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid for you when I banish my sword at before them, and they shall tremble at every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. All right. So we've been seeing a lot of condemnation against Egypt for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and again, I think we're in a place where most of what he's saying is, has not happened to Egypt yet. Egypt has never fallen this completely that it has been made a total desolate waste. And with this last portion that I read, I think he's even talking about the tribulation period when, when we'll get some more in-depth on that when we get there. So it starts out again, our little time marker. In the twelfth year of the twelfth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. And we commented that Ezekiel seems to like this idea of giving exactly when he's getting these messages. Because this has been his habit over and over again to to give a time marker exactly when he's, when he's making his message. And there's some value in having time markers. Uh, one of the things I learned about prayer is too many people pray very general prayers that you never know whether they've been answered or not. God bless this person. Well, if the person wakes up the next morning, they've been blessed. If you wake up the next morning and you're pray praying for a blessing, you've been blessed. I mean, it's... Uh, and God is looking for people of with faith that was willing to say, God, I need something. I think of George Mueller, whose prayers were, you know, the daily provisions for his, for all the children that he was taking care of and the uh, payroll that he had to take care of because he had workers that took care of the children. So he, his prayers all the time were very specific. God, we need this. <laughs> we need breakfast this morning. We need this much money to pay the bills. And, and God provided for them. And, you know, we want to be want to be careful that we're not so specific that God, we don't recognize God's blessing. You know, uh, my prayer shouldn't be, God, I want a, a cherry red viper, the, you know, brand new, uh, you know, because that's not what he's going to give us anyway. 
But you know, at the same token, God, I need, I need a new vehicle or I need a better vehicle. It would be a valid prayer. Uh, a v better vehicle than I currently have <laughs> type prayer. I need a better health, you know, better home, but make sure there's a reason why, not just because you, your friends got better homes or better vehicles and you need one. Um, so he puts these time markers in. Verse two, son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him, you are like a young lion of the nations and you are as a whale in the seas. You came forth from your river, with your rivers and troubled the water with your feet and fouled their rivers. And so he's, in one sense, he's kind of praising Pharaoh. You look at the language that he's using with Pharaoh. He's, number one, he's to take up a lamentation, a, a wailing, a bemoaning for Pharaoh. And how does he describe Pharaoh? A young lion among the nations. Young lions are, are strong and, and uh, they, rule, they rule their area, or at least plan to rule their area. <laughs> they don't always be successful in it. He goes, you are like a whale in the sea. The whales are the largest creatures. Nothing, nothing theoretically bothers the whale, at least it belongs in the ocean. Man, man can do a number on a whale, but the rest, they, they pretty much, the whale is the master of the ocean. Uh, and he says, you came forth with your rivers and troubled the waters with your feet and fouled your rivers. And this is that whole idea of being in control ever been at a pool or anything, a lot of times we'd like to kick up the water as much as we could on the sides, you know, or on the edges, you know, kick the water, get it churning up. Um, and uh, the picture of fouling the rivers, I think is a picture of the alligators, the way they hunt and everything. And when they get their animal, you know, get hold of their prey, they end up churning the water. And he's basically picking very strong creatures and saying, you know, Pharaoh, you're, you're like these creatures, you know. You're, you're probably saying he's got pride in himself as well. The young lion, prideful, I'm, I'm everything. The whale, I'm not afraid of anything. The, and if it is the alligator that he's referring to in this troubling the water and fouling the water, the alligator or crocodiles have no fear of anything. So I think he's saying, you know, Pharaoh, you've been proud, but you know, this is what you think you are. You think, you think, you're, great, you, you think you're all this great power. And you know, people who think they're powerful are bound to come to a fall at some point. And it's very interesting when you watch people's lives and you see people who think they're think they're something. And half the time, they're really not all that all, all as good as they think they are in the first place. And everybody knows it except for them. <laughs> and then God brings them down eventually, one way or the other. And even if they are truly powerful, God still brings them down and humbles them if they're not dependent on him. And this is something we see over and over again. We may get envious of these people that seem to have everything. And number one, they don't. <laughs> Keep that in mind. When you, when you see somebody you think has everything, most likely they are wishing they didn't have anything because it's not, didn't give them the happiness they wanted. Now they can't trust anybody. They're always wondering why people are being friendly with them. I've, I've known two or three rich people that were like that. You know, they couldn't trust anybody because they were always wondering, you know, what does this person want from me? You know, what does this person want from me? Not, you know, would they be my friend if I was poor? That's why a lot of the wealthy people hide their wealth. There's a lot of truth to that too. Well, there is, which is why they wonder it. Because there are a lot of people who are after them. What can I get from you know, get from them. And unfortunately, a lot of 
charitable, charitable organizations do the same thing, you know, you know, give, give, give to us, you know, and it's, and they need the money, but by the same token, are you going after the person just because of what you can get from them or because you care about them? And this is something that's very important, and I very much in this church make sure that I don't know who gives, who doesn't give, uh, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to know that stuff. What are people looking at? Why do people go after, you know, and we know people tend to do that. They look at the people that have supposed success and think, oh, well, that guy's got it all, or that girl's got it all. And we've talked about this many times, you know, how many of our sports superstars are actors, actresses, singers, and, you know, seem to, from our side, have it all. You know, they've got everything. They've got the big house. They've got the cars. They've got the notoriety. And then the next thing you know, they're blowing their brains out or, or o overdosing on drugs because they're still not happy. Because nothing, things are never going to make people happy. And that pride, that desire to be in charge is n never going to make people happy. And I've heard people say, well, I'd love to try. And go, you don't understand, do you? You don't understand at all. The things aren't going to do it for you. And you know, you look at people who are happy in the Lord, and whether they have much or little, they're still happy, and they know what true happiness is. Not all this pride and everything that possesses people. And Solomon was very good at it. He says, you know, all the money in the world is not going to make you happy. And this is somebody that knew what he was talking about, because he had pretty much all the money in the world. The Bible tells us that in Solomon's day that silver was his, was, had the value of dust. It was so plentiful that it was not worth anything. Uh, gold wasn't far behind. You know, he had so much wealth in the kingdom that nothing, nothing had any power over him to, to give him anything. And then all the other things that he did, he was the one that experimented with everything. He probably had to keep, just keep looking for something new. Because he wasn't trusting in God, yes. Yeah. No, but I mean, just, just to keep interested or, you know, reasons to live and stuff like that. And again, it depends on what your reason, what you're trying to, trying to, if you're trying to find your reason for living outside of God, it doesn't matter who you are, how wealthy you are, or poor you are, you're looking for, always looking for more. Because nothing satisfies. Uh, Pascal said that everybody has a God-shaped hole in their life and only God can fill it. And we can, you know, you can try to fill it with everything else, but it just won't fill up. Theologian, mathematician, and scientist. But again, that's not going to, being an Epicurean, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die doesn't make you happy either. Because, you, because your pleasure eventually stops giving you pleasure. Because it doesn't fulfill. And this is, you know, so many people think, well, if I could just go do all these things, I could, if I could just travel, you know, I could afford to travel all the time. I'd be happy. Talk to people who travel all the time, and they're not happy. You can get tired of anything in this physical world, and God is trying to tell us our satisfaction needs to be in him. Because he's the only thing that's infinite, infinite enough to fill up our greatest needs, whatever that might be. And he fills them. And I love being one of his children and just following him. You know, walking with God is one of the greatest experiences you can ever have is just learning to trust in Him and see the things that He does, the places He puts you in, the people He gets you to see, and just watching Him work is an amazing, amazing process. And knowing that there's so much greater yet to come. It takes an infinite being to fulfill us infinitely. 
because that's our desires. We really don't think about that. I mean, I still think we really think most people don't. That's the problem. They seek after things, thinking that somehow things are going to satisfy. But we have an infinite desire for things, and it can only be fulfilled by an infinite God. And if you've ever pursued anything in your life that you thought was going to give you happiness and even got halfway there, you didn't get satisfied with it. And people who chase after money never have enough money. Never. There's always... A little more they want, a little more they want, a little more they want. And even in giving it away, if it's not for the right purposes, it's not any, any great blessing after a while because you can only give so much away before I'm tired, you know, tired of giving it. You know, I'm tired, it not, doesn't seem to be doing what I want because everything has to be centered in God. And then once you start walking with God, and he does all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things for you to just teach. I love to just learn more about God. I love to share God with people. I love to just talk, with, talk about God. And he fulfills every aspect of those desires. And you know, this is something that we want to be very careful of, is not to be envious of people who seem to have things together. Because if you really get to know them, they probably don't. And they're, they're hurting just as bad as anybody else. And maybe even more, because they got all their stuff in their and their baggage around them, wondering if they could trust anybody in the first place. And so we want to be looking at that. I don't know how far it got spread off in this, all the pride. <laughs> Verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, I will therefore spread out my net over you with a company of many people, and they shall bring you up in my net. So God's going to cast a net and, and put them under his charge, and under his control. And you know, We've talked about this off and on, but God says vengeance is his, he will repay. And, you know, we need to let God just be God. How many times in our, in our, when we're angry at somebody, do we want to plot vengeance against them and try to figure out how to get back at them? Or, even worse, especially as parents, we try to be God in our kid's life. You know, this is what you're supposed to be doing, kid. Uh, and, you know, after a while, our kids don't want to have anything to do with us because, you know, they're getting tired of being told that they're not doing things right. And so we need to be praying for those that are our enemies, praying for our families, praying for those around us, and asking God to do whatever it takes to get after, you know, to get them. Because if I try to change somebody, it doesn't work. It never works to try to change somebody. All you're going to do is make them resentful of you. And you'll get frustrated because they're not changing the way you want. And if you learn to just pray for them, God will change you to, so it's not as big a deal to you. And then, then you'll change them as well. And this is the great, new, this great thing. He, he starts taking away your desire to want to change them. He starts taking away this, this absolute need for them to change. And then they change anyway. And again, I've, I've always wondered, do they change or does my attitude just change so much that I don't care anymore? And it's probably both. But, you know, God says, I'm going to catch you up in this net and, and you're going to be drawn up. He says, verse 4, Then I will leave you upon the land and I will cast you forth upon the open field and will cause all the fowls of the heaven to, to remain upon you and will fill the beast of the whole earth with you. In essence, he's saying, I'm dragging you up out of the water and casting you on the land. He's going back to his reference of the, the whale. You know, we're going to put you up on the beach, and you're going to die there, and the carrion fowl are going to be covering you, and all the other carrion animals are going to have their fill. 
you know, basically, Pharaoh, you think you're something. You think you're something big. I'm going to drag you up and destroy you, and everybody's going to have a piece of you. Everybody that wants will have a piece of you, and it's pretty, pretty brutal discussion that God's saying. You know, he, <laughs> he's being very graphic. Now, keep in mind, part of this is um, from the spiritual side. Egypt represents the flesh and the world. All right, so. Egypt is getting this direct curse, but he's also putting it on the world system as well. And it's part of the reason why I think this is all, a big part of this is talking about the end days. That God is going to put the world system out. Started it at the cross where Jesus died and was crucified, and we can have a resurrected life. But at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus will reign in this world for a thousand years and it says that if anybody dies at 100, they'll be considered a child during that period of time. It's going to go back to the days of, of, uh, of Eden, similar. Long life, plenty of food, animals not being, being a threat, uh, and God keeping sin under, under control. After the, After the tribulation. Uh, the rapture, seven years of tribulation, we come back with him for the millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ. Time of, for all practical purposes, paradise. Well, we as Christians will have our glorified bodies because we're, we've gone to heaven in the, in, in the rapture. The ones on earth will have some form of their body changed. Now, how that's going to happen, I don't know because he doesn't. He doesn't really tell us. He just says that the man who dies at 100 years old is considered a child. And that means they're back to long life as, as back in the days of the Adam and Eve and all those guys that lived into their hundreds, multiple hundreds of years. If you go back all the way to Noah and before that, 900 years, you know, before Noah. So what God will do to change that? Don't know, but he's God. He can do whatever he wants to change that. Uh, but for a thousand years, there's going to be perfection on this world. And the flesh will be dealt with. It will be pretty much taken out. And then at the end of the thousand years, they let Satan back out for one last hurrah. And he raises an army to, to fight against God. And that's hard to believe. For a thousand years, you've had perfection. And you know the funny thing about it is in our world and the education system right now, they're telling you that if we just had a better environment, everybody would be good. There wouldn't be any problems if we didn't have all these bad people teaching people to be bad. You know, this thousand-year reign of Christ is going to be a, a, the final nail in that coffin. We're going to have a thousand years of peace and general perfection. Not absolute. Sin nature is still there, and God's going to rule with an iron rod. But things are going to be so close to perfect, and yet Satan's going to be able to raise an army at the end of that period to fight against God. Why? Mostly because the sin nature has been forced to be obedient and they're going to want to sin. And here comes the offer to sin and they're going to rebel. Because the sin nature does not want to be disciplined. The sin nature must be crucified. We've said this many times. The sin nature must be crucified or it is going to flare up when it's given an opportunity. And if you've ever tried to discipline your flesh in some area and not, and not let God deal with it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, people will stop drinking and they'll do good for years sometimes but when they when they all of a sudden the sin nature gets back into them they'll go at least as bad and usually worse than what they had left 
And we do this all the time with our sin nature that must be crucified because otherwise it's going to flare back up on a, on a given opportunity. So the truth of crucifixion is, I don't know, I guess a willing act. I don't know how to say it. We have to allow God to do it because he's not going to do it without our willing participation. But in Galatians 2.20, we're told, you know, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ wants to crucify us. If we want to argue and fight and not let him crucify our flesh, he's not going to say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Could he? Absolutely. God could do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. But you know, God gives us the ability to say, no, I'm not going to do something. Now, when we say, no, we're not going to do something, he'll make life rough for us and make things hard on us. We still have the right to say no. So God sometimes will put us in such a place that we choose to be obedient to him, probably more out of compulsion than desire, but he knows what's good for us. And most times he wants us to do it out of desire to follow him. And a lot of that is just learning to walk with him and, and giving up. God is, God is so wonderful. I mean, I've loved being in his service for all the years that I've been in. You know, not all of them have been great years, especially when I was fighting against him. But God will, God will, is so patient. And when we think about what we deserve from God, we deserve to be killed. Most everybody. I know I do. And I've never really done any really serious sins, according to most people. But I know I've been disobedient enough to God that I've tried his, you know, would have tried, tried his patience and deserved to be taken home. And yet God is so patient with us, so patient with us to keep saying, are you ready to give up? Are you ready to surrender? Are you ready to surrender? Are you ready to surrender? And just as the parable son, we'll go off and do ourselves damage in the far country, thinking we're enjoying ourselves. And at some point, get down to the rock bottom and say, you know what? I'm going back to God. It was much better doing what he wanted. But God is so patient that he lets us do it. The prodigal son thought he was having a blast. It said he, he, lived, he lived riotously, which probably meant drinking and drugging, and you know, probably had lots of friends while he had money. Lots of friends helping him use up all of his money. And where were those friends as soon as he ran out of money? You know, they had left him. He found himself feeding the pigs. Yeah, they weren't there feeding the pigs. They weren't there, they weren't there uh, helping him get back to dad even. They were like, okay, well, we had fun while you had money. Now we're on to our next... A lot of our athletes who come out of uh, the ghettos bring their friends with them out of the ghetto when they get their millions, and, and their friends help them spend their millions. And they end up at the end of, that, end of their career with no money because friends have spent it all, and, and they've moved on. But that's the way of the world. The way of the flesh uses things and people up, which is why nothing will satisfy because the flesh is always looking, what, what will feed me? What will make me feel good? I think families can do it to you, too. Anybody can do it to you. If you're not centered on Christ, all of it is centered in what can I get? What, is, what am I getting from my family? You want me to come and spend time with you. What am I getting for my you know, time? And it may not even be physical you know, things, but what kind of attention, what kind of praise am I getting for being in your family and, and spending Christmas with you or whatever the, whatever the event might be. And people are looking at it, you know, the flesh is always what's in it for me. What's in it for me? How can I be satisfied and the flesh will never be satisfied? 
the desires of the flesh will never, ever be satisfied. And we've got to keep that in mind because so many times we will go into sin thinking that somehow it's going to satisfy and maybe not even thinking at all, but just thinking it's going to be good and then finding out, oh, it wasn't, wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Stumbled into things that, on occasions where I found myself in sin and there's been a couple of occasions where I just chose I was going to sin knowing it was wrong. You know, God, I would just want to enjoy this night and find out that it wasn't what I was going to enjoy. And nothing real big, but just certain times that I've done things that I'm going, I'm just going to do it. And there was no joy, no joy in it whatsoever. Not even a little bit of joy of finding yourself accidentally where, where sin takes you. If you choose to go into sin, there's no joy. Because you know you're doing wrong at that point. Flesh is never satisfied. And this is something we've got to keep in mind because it's so easy for us to think that something will satisfy People who get into sexual relationships thinking that it's going to satisfy some need and, and it might for a short time, but after a while it doesn't satisfy. Alcohol, drugs, all the other things that we do never satisfy over the long haul. And God's saying, come to me. <laughs> come to me that are heavy, you that are heavy laden. My burden is light. Now, let God carry our problems. Now, so much fun when you can let, learn to let God carry your problems because he wants to, number one. He's strong enough to carry them. And he says, okay, just follow me. You know, follow me. Let me carry them. And you turn them over to him. You turn them over to him and just let him uh, take care of them because he wants to. Let's see, verse 5. And I will lay your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your height. All right, so he's saying, Pharaoh, you're going to be, you thought you were tall, you thought you were deep, I'm going to fill all of those things with, with your flesh, with your carcass. Pretty, pretty bold uh, and strong statement that he's making on it. And again, Egypt has never fallen this completely in, in the history that I know of. They've always been a at least low-ranking power in the region, compared to what they used to be you know, in the early, early time that Ezekiel's talking about. They've always been a power. So again, I think we're talking about an end time. But again, I see this picture of the flesh. God wants to destroy the flesh and says, I want to get rid of it. Because the flesh drives us to do so many things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are, are problems that we have in every single person. We want to do things wrong. Our eyes are drawn to doing things wrong. And then we have that pride of life. I deserve it. I deserve, I deserve to have what I want. Not be sacrificed to God. You know, I deserve to have what I want. And yet God calls us as Christians to be bond slaves. And if you don't remember what a bond slave is, a bond slave is somebody who served a, served a person up to seven years of being free and said, you know what, I like, I like being your servant, make me your servant for life. And they would take and put an uh, earring through their ear and, and make them a servant for the rest of their life. We are supposed to be God's bond slaves. God, I just want to do what you want me to do. And being the slave and the servant of somebody is you do what they want, not what you want. Which means if we're his bond slave, our flesh is to be crucified and gotten rid of. And we go, God, what is it you want me to do? And that was, you know, you read through the New Testament, Paul on almost one, every one of his letters says that, you know, he's a bond slave of Christ. Peter says it, John says it, 
They're all saying that the bond slave of Christ because they understood voluntary, I'm making myself a voluntary servant to you, Lord, because I love you so much and I know that you care for me. And God takes care of us. But that whole idea of being a voluntary servant, God can make the whole world his servants with no problem. He can make us do whatever he wants us to do, but he wants that voluntary service. God, I just want to serve. I want to do whatever it is you want me to do. And that can be a scary prayer. Now, not that God's going to send you out in the middle of Timbuktu because you say this prayer, but you know, just to be willing to do whatever he wants you to do. It could be interesting at times. You know, you're driving down the highway and God says, stop and pick this person up. Uh, God, that person looks kind of scary. <laughs> uh, and you pick them up and you witness to them. You know, God says, I want you to share the gospel with that person over there. You know, who, that big biker with the Harley? You know, <laughs> you know, some people have no problem with that. Others would say, you know, no way, God. <laughs> uh, but you know, God will direct us oftentimes to do things and talk to people. And he wants to sit with us with divine opportunities to talk to people. And it's an amazing thing when you get to talk to these people and you get to just share the gospel with them. Sometimes eyes are open, sometimes they get glazed over. <laughs> but just the opportunity to share with people God. And it could be as simple as, you know, telling what, what God has done for you. And this is the greatest thing I, that I look at. Can we share with people what God has done with, for us? How he's blessed us, how he's saved us, how he's changed our life. You know, if you're worried about sharing the gospel, tell them about how God's changed your life because they can't argue with it because it's your, your testimony, it's your life. They might tell you they don't believe it, but it's still your life, your changes, what God has done for you. They can't argue with it overall because it's yours. <laughs> and, you know, he's saying, I'm going to fill everything with you, Pharaoh. You're going to be totally obliterated. The valleys are going to be filled with you up to the mountains. And that's a pretty big filling. <laughs> Maya has a little footnote that says dead soldiers. Dead soldiers? Yeah. Um, I don't know if that fits in there, but I guess it could. Yeah. Your height, maybe he's talking about his strength. That's possible. I'm not going to argue that one. It's, <laughs> it's kind of out of context. Yeah. Putting soldiers in that part was out of context, but not not going to say it couldn't possibly be. I think it's his entire kingdom he's talking about because it's your height is your, your power, your, your authority. And he says, I've drawn you up and I've left you on the beach for everything to eat of you. So I don't think soldiers fits in there, but. Your remains. That one makes more sense because he's talking about, you know, his, the kingdom being wiped out and soldiers are part of the kingdom. So, I mean, it's, I, I won't argue that it doesn't, it just doesn't seem to fit contextually to be soldiers here. Romains I can figure because he's saying I'm wiping out your nation. There's going to be something something there possibly. Yeah, it's kind of being too specific. I think it's too specific for the context of the but again this would be one place where I'm looking at the context and it's talking about the nation so that gets to be very specific to try to say that it's the soldiers within the within the within him that he's talking about. Uh, because he's dragging up the entire nation and just laying it out in the open and flaying it open for the everybody. for everybody to devour. So they talk about their power, it could be talking about their power. Yeah. And that's why I can say soldiers, Romains, I can see the I can see how they would fit, but I think it's I would not choose that specific word with the context of this of this chapter. And that's why we're talking about how to study. Context is so important. What's the context? 
especially if a word can mean more than one thing, what does the context of it lead, lead toward? And I'm not going to say those words are wrong. I'm just saying that it, I don't think it fits. I don't think it fits the context because <laughs> it seems to be talking about the nation as a as a entity, not just specifics. Verse six. I will also water with your blood the land wherein you swim, even to the mountains and rivers shall be full of you. So again, he's talking about, I think, again, he's talking about the nation. Again, if we went to soldiers, he's wiped out enough soldiers to fill the, fill the land with their blood. But I really think he's talking about the nation's, the nation's blood more than a specific. He says, I'm going to spill everything that your nation is you know, known for. And uh, we, you know, this is a term that's used even in history that the nation spilt its blood, you know, in a very general reference to military and/or just the nation pouring out its resources. Pharaoh, we're going to pour out every all of your resources, all of your all of your power, all of your authority is going to fill the land and cover everything. And so it's we're kind of a poetic. This is kind of a poetic chapter, so I'm not looking at too many very strict. <laughs> interpretive, interpretive uh, sentences. Verse 7, And when I put you out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. The bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you, and set darkness upon your land, saith the Lord. Here I definitely see a picture of the fourth seal in, in Revelation, where God says that he's going to darken the heavens by a third. And that's what I see in this one. Whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but uh, he could be generalizing the light because it is poetic. He could be saying that I'm not going to let any truth or, or knowledge be in, enlightening your, your land, and that's a possibility as well. But again, I see this as being future anyway, so as the prophecy, I would see, see this happening because, again, remember we've talked about light. Light can be the literal light that illuminates. It can also be knowledge that illuminates. It can be God that illuminates. So light can mean a lot of different things, in the, in the, especially in the Old Testament. And so it could be very figuratively of no knowledge, or it could be literal that the lights have been darkened. And we do know that that's been forecast already in the fourth trumpet of, in uh, Revelation, that the lights the, the moon, the stars, the sun will be darkened by one-third. Snuff you out. Well, one of the words could be the distinguish, so yeah, it's the same, same thing. Distinguish, distinguish is a valid... Uh, yeah, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the light, light. So Again, even if he's just talking about knowledge and power and everything, that's fine. And that's because it is poetic, it could very easily be that. I'm going to extinguish your... Your light. I'm going to stuff out, snuff out your light. You know your power, your authority. Well, when you're when you think you're one of the top of the top dog of the world, you know it's to say you're going to be obliterated, basically, because this is what he's talking about them being obliterated. And remember, for the previous two chapters, we've had many references to them being a desolate waste where no man would would even wander through. They very much sounds you know, and I've said over the last two chapters, it sounds very much like we're talking about a nuclear holocaust over them to wipe out and make their land uninhabitable for 30 or 40 years. Again, we're looking at this. They're going to be put in their place. They're going to be annihilated. And again, whether it's God literally making it dark over them or just extinguishing their influence, which has been talked about all along, so it could very well be extinguishing their influence. And 
if nothing else, it is also that he's, because he did speak specifically of the sun and the moon and the stars, which makes, which refers me back to Revelation when God says he's going to darken everything. So, and again, because he's been talking about their total dev destruction and total devastation, I kind of want to go to the <laughs> Revelation one on this one, not just, and it's probably a dual. Remember, I've told you that most prophecies have a dual fulfillment, and both of them are, are equally true. So it could be your influence is gone and God darkening the, the, the sun and the moon for them. Verse 9, I will vex the hearts of many people when I bring your destruction among the nations into the into the countries which you have not known. You know, vex their hearts. Because they're going to see this power all of a sudden totally destroyed. And if you've ever been around, you know, sometimes in sports and everything, you get this dynasty that all of a sudden starts losing. And it, it really hurts people who are attached to it for whatever reason. I kind of hate using that, but it's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. You know, been the number one sports team for a long time especially in some colleges, colleges that have their coach that runs a, runs a team for 20 years, they're the top dog, and all of a sudden they start losing. And there's some people that get really heartbroken that their team starts losing. Uh, and we can think of any, any number of things. It could be a business that you put all your money into that all of a sudden starts losing, and it's going to vex you. We see in Egypt the power. He says, I'm going to vex you. People are going to be sad that you're gone because they thought you were so strong, and if it can happen to them... What, what, can, what can happen to us? And that's basically what he's bringing this down to. People looking at Egypt and saying, wow, if this could happen to Egypt, what, what could happen to us? And all you can do is look at history. Every nation has fallen at some point. And it has driven some people, some other smaller nations, a little crazy. And we look at this and say, God, you're, you, you do this. You, you, you say you're going to do it to Egypt, but it's been done over time. And this one's kind of partially been done because Egypt has become less and less of a power over the year, over the millennia. And they're starting to try to come back a little bit. They're, they're a minor player in the Middle East, uh, or a fairly major player in the Middle East, but a minor player in the world. And so we're seeing their power, and it may be coming up for them to be judged again. And then it says, verse 10, Yea, I will make many people amazed at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid for you when I brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble at every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. And people, again, there's, it's basically the same thing that the first one was. People have put all their hope in Egypt, and now they're watching Egypt fall, and it's going to cause them fear. And this is why even for us as Christians, we need to be careful. Who is our hope and our trust in? It better be God. Because if it's in anything else, we're going to fail. If it's in a church, a pastor, leaders, where is our hope? Is it in politics? Is it in money? Is it in anything other than God? It's misplaced. And God will tear down whatever your hope is in and show you that it's misplaced. Because anytime we put our hope in anything else, it will fall. If our hope is in money, and if all of our hope is in, in our money, in our stock markets, in our retirement accounts, whatever it might be, when the, when the markets, uh, when the economy fails, we're going to be devastated. Our hope must be in God. And if our hope is in God, it's like, okay, I lost out. Okay, God, now how are you going to take care of me? 
Okay, God, you know, I used to have some strength and power. I could get things done, but now I don't have that. I'm sickly and barely able to move. I'm going to put my trust in you, God, and you've got, you've got plans for me still. Where is our trust? Where is our hope? And when we stand up and live in God, people notice. People really do notice when you're living for God and, you, and you're not totally devastated by the bad things that happen to you. Now, people might think you're a little weird and strange because you're, you know, you're not responding the way that, but they also admire that kind of strength. Where, where is your hope? What, what keeps you going? And I've had many people ask me that over the years when I was managing. How can you stay calm and, and not, have, not react when these people attack you or when things get so crazy? Go and open up and tell them about God. <laughs> it's all God. God's in charge. And you know, so our power, our strength, our hope has to be in God and let him allow him to crucify all of our flesh, let him crucify our desires. And then when he fulfills our desires, they're his desires and, it, and, they, and they're fulfilled. We look at it and say, God, what is it you want me to do? How am I going to serve you and give me the opportunities? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to learn to just follow you in a stronger and deeper way. We ask that we be looking, that we will help us to look for those divine appointments that you have in our place, that we will stretch out and reach out and, and grab hold of them and serve you in the ways that you want us to. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.